Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. I'm your host, Judy Dusick, and we are speaking with Dr. Ty Gluckman, the medical director of the Center for Cardiovascular Analytics, Research, and Data Science at Providence. Today, we are discussing what Providence is doing to improve delivery of care to our cardiology patients. Hi, Dr. Gluckman, and thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so, you know, before we get started, we'd love to learn a little bit about you and the work you do at Providence. Yeah, I'm a practicing cardiologist, a general cardiologist, and I've been with Providence for 16 years. And while I still continue to see patients, over the last several years have helped to develop a dedicated center that is being used to accelerate research and our data in order to improve patient care. That's amazing. And I'm looking forward to really unpacking that um, as we move forward in our discussion. Um, so can you give us a little bit of information about the Center for Cardiovascular Analytics Research and Data Science? That's a lot to say. Um, and what is this? What is the mission behind, behind this? Yeah. Yeah, so CARDS, as we like to affectionately refer to it, it, is a center that was created now about four and a half years ago, and it brings together different parts of the organization with a mindset towards making healthcare more affordable, more accessible, more equitable in cardiovascular medicine. We've had bits and parts of this historically, but we brought together under one umbrella our clinical trials team who do traditional trials that you would think about investigating new devices or drugs to see if they help advance the field. We brought together analysts who allow us to be able to have access to large data sets and be able to mine that data to garner insights. Are there patterns or pictures that come about from studying large numbers of individuals that will help us be able to better apply that to an individual patient to make their care better? We brought together biostatisticians who allow us to be able to analyze and determine whether or not there are differences between different groups or observations that we may garner overall. And we brought together our groups of individuals that help us support registries. These are databases uh, related to common procedures like open heart surgery or coronary stenting, referred to as angioplasty, where we enter data into national registries to be able to understand how we perform relative to other centers. We also have some homegrown registries where we've been able to use these both for clinical quality improvement purposes, but also as research tools to be able to allow us to understand better the care that we're delivering. And the one thing that's clear about all of these individuals is that they're all striving to be able to improve patient care. They come at this from different vantage points, however. Interesting. So thank you for that background on what CARDS is and who CARDS is, because I think that's really important um, is the expertise, the skills, the people really behind um, this mission. What are some of the guiding principles around um, what CARDS decides to prioritize? And it sounds like there's, you know, from what 
you might traditionally understand from a, a lay person in terms of what research is. And like you said, there's the traditional paths of clinical trials that we hear a lot about, but then there's there's this advancement in data and how we're able to capture data like we probably couldn't before 10, 15 years ago. So um, now with sort of this sort of innovation of, of how we get big data, what are some of the guiding principles that you use to drive the areas of, of research and um, how you explore and focus on, um, on certain areas of, of healthcare? Yeah, so I guess at a high level, our mission is to leverage our data and research infrastructure to accelerate innovation and discovering heart health for the betterment of patient care. Now that maybe is a mouthful to sort of absorb, but I think at the center of the work that we do is that our CARDS Center has historically been the part of the organization that has been used to aggregate a lot of our cardiovascular data in order to be able to identify gaps in care, areas for quality improvement, and how we can do a better job continuously striving to make the care that we deliver that much better. But I think the reality of the situation is that we have access to very large data sets, affectionately referred to as big data. And that big data can be leveraged increasingly in lots of different ways that we maybe historically didn't think about or traditionally haven't focused on overall. As I shared, we might be able to inventory or identify where there are gaps in the care that we'd ideally like to provide that we're not. But there is an increased focus increasingly in delivering high value care. And so can we begin to delve into and find are there two populations of patients, one's treated with one approach, one's treated with another approach, they have equal outcomes, but one is more costly to deliver and therefore lower in value. We also leverage our larger data sets to be able to figure out, can we predict the disease trajectory of a given patient? Can we find out if someone's more likely to have better or worse outcomes and use that information in the way that we deliver clinical care? A lot of focus during the COVID-19 pandemic has been around health inequity and imbalances in our delivery of care. And so our data can be leveraged to understand better, are there disparities in the care that we deliver based on age, sex, race, ethnicity, that may go wholeheartedly unintended, but it's a very clarifying bit of information to us that we need to deliver our care better overall. We increasingly want to be able to leverage technology and terms like artificial intelligence are being used, but ways in which we can leverage computers to garner insights using our larger amounts of data to better improve the care that we're delivering. So this is just a snapshot. It's not a complete picture, but it gives you an idea where large amounts of data can inform us and actually allow us to better deliver care to address our patients' needs. Right. I love I love the idea of predictability. And it sounds like that in some situations that by being able to do this, it also allows us more time to uh, either more time or it shaves off time to come to some conclusions about the effectiveness of care. Um, and I think that what it also sounds like is that if we're trying to get more predictive, it isn't so much that we're just looking for um, interventions, but how do we keep people well? 
because always about healthcare, right? It's about delivering health um, and care when they need it. But um, this allows then if we are able to uh, get patients the treatment they need sooner, then they wouldn't get as sick. Would you agree? I totally agree. You'll hear me say on more than one occasion, my greatest joy in life would be putting myself out of business. Um, and as a cardiologist, very unfortunately, we see the later stages or manifestations of cardiovascular disease much more than we otherwise should. This could be a heart attack. It could be heart failure. It could be a stroke. And we know that there are risk factors that increase the likelihood of these conditions. This gets to the concept of population health. Can we looking at populations, knowing what are healthful behaviors, knowing what are risk factors for cardiovascular disease, how do we intervene upstream? This is challenging work. This is not easy work, but at large populations that we take care of, can we effectively deliver better care upstream to your point, to promote wellness, to promote health, so as to mitigate, reduce the risk of these untoward consequences overall, while at the same time applying all of the interventions that we know are favorable, beneficial to people who unfortunately have later manifestations of their cardiovascular disease. Couldn't agree with you more. So I I, I really like the term population health, and you you talked about some uh, some diseases that are that are common and, and known um, heart disease. We talk about high blood pressure and stroke, heart attacks, um, and in some cases there are diagnoses that are even more difficult to detect. Um, and definitely understand that there's some science around understanding our genetics and our family history. Um, but that even get at some really some more rare conditions. Can you talk to us about um, maybe some of those smaller populations that are at great risk um, for having a predisposition to disease that is really hard to detect? Yeah, no, I, I think you bring up a great point. And I often liken this to the uh, equivalence of finding a needle in a haystack. So there are conditions, and I'll name just a couple here, one called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is an inherited disorder associated with thickening of the walls of the heart and a heightened risk of suddenly dying, so-called sudden death, or cardiac amyloidosis, which is a type of heart failure that results from the abnormal depositing of protein in the walls of the heart that can impact how it relaxes. And both of these conditions, although historically determined to be rare, they're actually probably more common than we've thought they've been, still uncommon conditions. And so a frustrating thing for patients, no question, but also clinicians, physicians, is these conditions don't necessarily have an obvious signature that may lead us to identify them earlier in one's life. And tragically, we hear about people, particularly with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, who may die suddenly and we never knew they had the condition. So how can we use larger data sets, so-called big data, to garner insights? Well, it turns out that individuals with these conditions may have abnormalities on their electrocardiogram, sometimes referred to as an EKG or an ECG. They may have other clinical features that may affect 
other parts of the body. In the case of amyloid, they may have problems involving their neurologic system. And as a cardiologist, you may not connect all of the dots necessarily intuitively, or you may not have all the information that you need. So this is one of those areas where large data sets, particularly through the electronic medical record, may be able to allow clinicians today and in the future with insights. And imagine a world in which I, as a practicing clinician, my colleagues had the ability to essentially tap you on the shoulder and say, you know what? There are a bunch of pieces of data, features in their record that raise questions about this condition. You may want to look deeper into the possibility that that's what's going on. Now, we're not ready today for that across the board for all conditions, but for uncommon cardiovascular conditions where there are some insights that may be gleaned from the electronic medical record, this is part of the promise of what big data may be able to offer in the future. Right. And I think um, it sounds like, so in, in, especially with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you know, the, the people who are affected by this may not be, may not have a profile where this is suspect, you know, so, you know, you would find this potentially in, in young people and athletes. Um, and, and I've, I've, I've heard of cases like this when I was in Texas and it's, you know, as a parent, you know, of, of athletes, we, we then tend to worry about these things and there are screening protocols and, and things that, uh, we tend to kind of want to use to help identify these things, but we don't, it gets back to the theme of predictability and how do we use the information we have, um, so that we don't have to wait for an incident, um, to then learn what, what could we have done different? So I appreciate, um, again, sort of the predictive nature of where research and sort of the different modes of research that we can do, like leveraging data. Can I just add one more thing just related to this? Because the concept of big data may sound foreign to a lot of people listening, but the reality is we use it in our lives every day. And so whether you're shopping on the internet for a product that in fact, a pop-up comes up and says, other people who bought this product bought similar products, or you're watching a movie that you're streaming and you get prompted with some suggestions, or even you're actually driving and you get an alert that there may be a traffic delay up ahead. All of that is leveraging large data sets, so-called big data, albeit outside of healthcare. And it's allowing you as a consumer, as a watcher, as a driver, to make smarter decisions. And so the big data that we are harnessing in cards is striving to apply that to healthcare. And much like you stated, if we can garner insights and get a greater sense of the patient population that we're managing, this is going to be important for uncommon, rare conditions, but it will also be very important for very common conditions as well. Thank you. Can you can you also give us um, an example of some current studies that you're using data to change patient care and some possible outcomes that you've seen? Yeah, so there are a range of different areas in which we've done research, but I'll just give one example. And we had a recent publication earlier this year related to this. It may come as a surprise to many individuals, but for most people who have their cholesterol measured, which a lot of us do, 
we actually calculate the so-called bad cholesterol or LDL cholesterol level. We don't actually directly measure it. And it turns out that we have three different equations that are available in the United States to be able to calculate one's LDL cholesterol or bad cholesterol level, one of which most hospitals across the United States utilize and has been around for many decades, but two newer equations or formulas have been introduced. And so we sought using our own data that we have in the Providence Health System, we sought to be able to look across populations that we serve to figure out how similar or dissimilar were the reported values that came out for the populations of patients. We specifically focused in on those that had already had a cardiovascular event or had symptoms related to having blockages of the arteries of the heart or prior stroke or vascular disease involving their legs. And lo and behold, we found that the three different equations had a level of discordance, difference between the equations, particularly for people that had higher levels of a different fat in the bloodstream called triglycerides. And you may say, well, why is this important? Obviously, having an accurate measurement of one's cholesterol will help inform whether or not for those that need to go on cholesterol-lowering therapy, is it measuring the level correctly? And then second, for those that warrant cholesterol-lowering therapy, we often titrate those medications to achieve a specific level overall. So this is one of those areas in which for our own health system, we're exploring, do we actually change the formula or calculation that we use so as to get a better gauge of cholesterol levels so we're making the best possible decisions for our patients? Wow, I I can appreciate that. Um, I as a as a five foot Latina with um, a lot of family history of of cardiac disease and um, especially around cholesterol, you know we don't want to take medicine that we don't need to. Again, it kind of adds to the cost of care, and, um, and there really isn't a, a, a I would say a magic pill, if you will, that kind of helps this. But it's it's precision. I think that um, in the end will will help in terms of how we take care of ourselves, right? Because it isn't just um, a medication, but what are those other things? As I'm not a, I wouldn't find myself as a typical demographic other than my family history. I do everything I think is right, but yet I still have high cholesterol. So there's just something particular about me and my you know, genetic makeup where it's just, I would wanna get this right. So I appreciate you really kind of digging in to, um, to the science of that and and just making it better. I mean, I, we've always appreciated knowing uh, what we know today, but it's about how do we continue to ask the question and how do we continue to make um, make it more precise? Um, so would, would you be able to tell us um, what are some big wins that have come out of these programs? So this, uh, that was a great example, but what are some other big wins that have come out of the programs uh, through CARDS? Yeah, so I think we're constantly striving to use either our own internal data or external data sets uh, that may come from other organizations uh, or even the federal government to be able to learn more about the patients that we care for. We've had a number of examples of research study where we've been able to identify gaps in care, issues related to health equity. I think the biggest challenge is how do you actually take the learnings from these studies and apply them in everyday care. 
So we're fortunate to be a part of a great, large learning healthcare system where we actively seek out to figure out where we can do better by our patients. But it is a challenge to be able to figure out whether it means putting an alert in the electronic medical record, changing how we measure levels of a lab test in our laboratories, like cholesterol levels. And so I think we've had a lot of great successes uh, managing and evaluating the data uh, for our patients that we serve. I think the biggest challenge, sort of the final step in a road race, if you will, is to be able to turn that data internally, figure out how we actually can better improve care. I will say one, just one example that we're continuing to strive for is there is a common rhythm disturbance called atrial fibrillation. In fact, it's the most common sustained abnormal heart rhythm in the United States today. And one of the feared complications for people that have atrial fibrillation is stroke. We know that there are blood thinners that individuals can be put on to help reduce the risk of stroke. Part of the issue is, is every patient that is eligible for a blood thinner receiving one today with in, with those conditions, with that condition. And so I think we're trying to build out tools that will allow us not only to be able to rely upon what our clinicians uh, assess as their stroke risk, but maybe we can actually pull out bits of data from the medical record, help our clinicians, again, with that gentle tap on the shoulder, know their at-risk patients overall. And it's a little bit of a reminder, hopefully a gentle reminder that would let them know if this is a patient that is eligible for a given therapy, not yet receiving it, how we might be able to make a difference. So that's just an area in which we're attempting to apply learnings into clinical practice day in and day out. I see. So we, we talked a lot about the utilization of data and I, I kind of want to go back a little bit to, to some of the more traditional um, type of clinical research where patients get involved or participants get involved. Um, and there are some, uh, right, some advances that, that come with um, and, and depend on patient uh, participants to learn more. Um, so what, what are um, the benefits to patients to, to participate in types of research? And this and maybe it, it's it, it's even around behavioral change or, you know, to, to understand compliance, um, because the data will tell us one thing and we can create protocols and, and drive, um, you know, care pathways to treat patients. But at the end of the day, it does come down to how do we understand people and how um, they, they, they behave and comply with um, with their therapies. Yeah, when I hear the word clinical trials, I think very traditionally around a new type of drug or device that is aiming to improve care in cardiovascular medicine. That could be something that's delivered in the operating room as a procedure or a drug that you would take as an outpatient to make your heart health better. And we have been very fortunate in cardiovascular medicine that a lot of our decisions we make about going on a therapy or having a treatment with a specific device is informed by not only thousands, but often tens of thousands of individuals that have been studied. Those are traditional trials, and we warmly encourage Edit Cards continue to participate in many of these clinical trials in various different areas 
because we know it's the key to advancing science, advancing medicine, and offering individuals cutting-edge technology, again, whether it be a drug or a device, to make them better. There are some limitations to these types of trials. They're very prescriptive about who gets enrolled in the trial, and there's a lot of intentionality behind that. They want to be able to study a specific population, and there may be individuals that are included and specifically populations that are excluded. I will say one of the advantages of having access to very large data is that we can actually look later on and figure out were individuals that may not have been included in a clinical trial, would those individuals or did those individuals fare as well as those people that were studied in a trial? You'll hear terms like real world evidence being applied. And that is in fact, exactly what we will do with large data sets is figure out whether individuals not included in the trial still derive the same magnitude of benefit. But unequivocally, traditional clinical trials represent the cornerstone of a lot of advance in cardiovascular medicine. And I feel very fortunate to be a part of a discipline, a specialty, where I can go to a patient and say, this was studied in 10,000 individuals. Here's the benefit. Here are the risks that were incurred. This is why I think this therapy is in your best interest. Yes. Thank you for making that connection and bringing it back around, because I think that's that's important to know. And I think it also gets at really um, how the research approach with data this way, it, it does help save time to getting to an answer or an outcome or understanding of what is truly effective. And given the fact that we know there are disparities in care and health equity, and it has been an issue across the board, um, and, and including in heart health and care, and so I think that um, making that connection is important because it does help close the gap of understanding um, what is effective um, and, and who is it most effective on. Um, so how do you see uh, heart health changing as a direct result of these clinical trials or using um, data to really drive um, outcomes uh, and, and more specifically in, in the prevention and wellness space? Yeah, I will just follow up on one of your comments overall. It is a big push by our professional societies, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association to find ways to uh, promote health equity, uh, avoidance of health disparities in our clinical trials. Traditionally, women and other underrepresented populations have been underrepresented in our clinical trials. And therefore, determining whether or not an outcome observed, is it applicable to those other populations? Um, we haven't always been able to answer that as affirmatively as we would otherwise like. So there is a big push. And I would encourage individuals, uh, all types of individuals, to try and, where possible, participate in clinical trials as it affords us a lot of the information that we use to uh, deliver the best possible care. Um, as it relates to your question, you know, I would hope that all learnings from a clinical trial, a very traditional one, so-called pragmatic trials that are run through the electronic medical record often, or even learnings that we get from looking at large data sets done in an observational fashion. And what I mean by that is an individual is not randomized to a drug or so-called placebo, but rather we make observations from studying large numbers of individuals and try and figure out whether a certain population is better served by one approach versus another. 
all of these trials or studies have limitations. They have pros and cons to them overall, but they help to round out the richness of our insights, our learnings from data in general and from research. Um, there is no question that in the prevention space, we are increasingly trying to get upstream to figure out not only who has a risk factor, who's at heightened risk for adverse cardiovascular events like heart attack or stroke, but how do we identify, flag these individuals earlier so as to, where possible, implement what we believe are effective strategies, most often in their lifestyle, through diet and exercise, to reduce the risk of them having an event, being at risk down the road. So I'm a huge fan of cardiovascular prevention. We typically talk about so-called secondary prevention where someone's already had an event and we're trying to prevent another one. Primary prevention are people who have risk factors and we're trying to prevent a first event. But the ultimate is primordial prevention. How do we prevent someone from even developing high blood pressure, high cholesterol or diabetes to begin with? And getting that far upstream is a passion of mine. And so hopefully our data will empower us to be able to make smart, healthful choices early on so as to prevent even risk factors from developing from the outset. And that definitely sounds like the future of heart health care. Um, so is there anything else that you would want to make sure that we cover that we haven't already discussed? Yeah, I would say one area of keen interest, and for those who may have someone who was unfortunately affected by cancer, in the oncology or cancer arena, you're probably very familiar with the concept of personalized care or precision medicine. And you may have someone who had a blood test that dictated what drug was used for a specific individual or a specific type of cancer. We are I would say further behind, much further behind in that direction compared to cancer research. But I'd love to move to a point down the road where we learn from studying populations, but we apply our learnings to the individual. And we essentially choose different therapies based upon someone's genetic makeup, based upon um, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they're a certain race or ethnicity, those factors impact someone's susceptibility and risk for cardiovascular events. And how do we begin to move in a direction where we're better personalizing the care that we deliver so that we're delivering the right care to the right patient at the right time? Well, I definitely applaud your uh, commitment and and compassion and um, drive to to continue this work. Um, I think that uh, you know we have a lot of big and small goals um, to look forward to in this space. Um, what excites you the most, and what do you feel are going to be you know the challenges in let's just say the next three to five years? Um, because your resiliency to continue this work is important. And, um, but we also have to understand the realities of, of where we are today. Um, but what, what would be some small and big goals um, and, and maybe even some, some challenges that, that uh, you might face? Yeah, I would say the last several years, while they have been extraordinarily difficult for the patients that we care for, they have also been extraordinarily difficult for hospitals, health systems, clinics, and importantly, 
all of the amazing, tremendously amazing caregivers that deliver care day in and day out. Uh, there has been a toll taken during the pandemic on all frontline caregivers. And so we can have the greatest advances, the most amazing of insights, and it gets lost if we don't have a healthy, um, viable, dedicated workforce that continues to strive for years and decades to come and taking care of the patients that need the care that they will continue to need going forward. So I think that that is a huge priority for hospitals and health systems and clinics alike. I'm excited also about their tremendous advances in the pipeline of different therapies in cardiovascular medicine, ranging from cholesterol management to novel therapies around heart failure and heart attack management. There are increasingly larger uh, access to data that is allowing us to better understand the populations that we serve. The field of genomics and being able to understand how genetics inform the care that we should be delivering. We're really, I think, at the tip of the iceberg in cardiovascular medicine in that regard. So there's a lot of excitement with new drugs, new devices, hopefully moving upstream so that we use them less frequently than more frequently, suggesting that we're doing a better job in preventing cardiovascular disease. All of this taking note of the fact that this is not lost, but it's more challenging to implement if we don't have a healthy, effective workforce in, in cardiovascular medicine and medicine in general. And so the call out there is, is that we need to find ways to be able to reduce the strains on our caregivers in ways that will allow them to work um, as effectively as they can. And I know this is top of mind for leaders in healthcare across the U.S. and beyond. Yes, Dr. Dr. Gluckman, I appreciate you uh, making that connection. You know, um, having worked in healthcare for 20 years and, and then just recognizing where the workforce is today, it's a lot different. And I think in this industry, we, you know, this is what, what you do, the work you do really helps um, identify who, who does the work, where we're doing the work, um, and how do we do it different? Um, to make it more efficient. And I think that's important moving forward. And healthcare is an amazing field to work in. You touch lives, not just of our of patients, but of families um, and, and the people who, who take care of those patients outside of the hospital. That's that's where a lot of that care happens. Um, but we, we definitely want to always encourage that um, healthcare is a place people want to be um, to help continue the mission. And we need to continue to remind, um, you know, our communities that uh, we're always looking for ways to do it better and to serve them better um, and to make the work environment the best place that it can be. And so I think always, you know, kind of keeping a mindset of um, innovation and um, creativity, um, this does exist in healthcare. And you talked about it um, this, this whole time. So I really appreciate you making that connection um, back to the people who who deliver um, care, the people who are always looking for ways uh, to improve the delivery of care, like you and your team, um, and and really all with the focus to uh, take better care of our of our patients and and to serve our communities. So I really appreciate that connection. Well said. 
Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.